Welcome to another episode of the Uphill Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Johnston, co-founder of Uphill Athlete. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Adrian Ballinger, who is an IFMGA certified mountain guide. He's been, he's also probably most notably uh, the owner of Alpenglow Expeditions and has been guiding full-time for 25 years. He's led over 150 international climbing expeditions on six continents and made 17 successful summits of 8,000-meter peaks. So I think Adrian has the, the chops to talk about what I want to speak with him today about, which is the preparedness of the, some of the clients that come to both of our organizations seeking um, help to get to the summit of these bigger, bigger peaks. And Adrian and I have had a working relationship in that I helped prepare him for his uh, two, two years ago ascents of both Mount Everest and K2 without the use of supplemental oxygen. So without further ado, let's jump into this with Adrian. But I was very focused. <laughs> I, I'm sure. Yeah. And you're racking up you know, the, the dollar signs are... Uh, I mean, fixed wings aren't as expensive exactly. as helicopters, but they're they're still pretty expensive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, mine is an old 1976 Cessna that I share with three other partners, so uh -huh. it is pretty reasonable. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, still, yeah, it's a car. <laughs> which which model is it? I have a, we have a 182, so a Skylane. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's um, a... So four-seater, but enough to fly in the mountains and to go, at, yeah. you know, it'll fly five hours. So yeah. for around the West, it works really well. I have it out here in Rifle right now. And, uh -huh. you know, on days off, we can fly and visit friends in Telluride or Crested Butte and things like that. So. Nice. Yeah, that's handy. It's been a lot of fun. And I think I've realized I'm not getting any better at, climbing anymore and probably not getting any better at skiing anymore but i could still get better as a pilot <laughs> yeah yeah i get it I'm, I'm at the stage i'm just you know a bit older than you are so i'm at the stage where not only am i not getting better at climbing i'm just trying to slow the decline <laughs> so you're in rifle for some sport climbing huh i'm in rifle for the month of september um with emily and uh, having a great time, you know, really, I, I probably said this on our text or somewhere, really since K2 last summer, or sorry, in summer 2019, both because of COVID and because of how, you know, my experience on that mountain and my contentedness, I sort of shifted and really focused on rock climbing for the last two years. Uh -huh. And it's been amazing. I, you know, gotten to climb a number of you know, 13 A's. I climbed my first 8A, 13B this past winter. Um, nice. Done a lot of big trips for them in Yosemite. And we were just in Kyrgyzstan for the whole summer, attempting a big uh, free route on a big formation over there. Wow. So it's been a heck of a lot of fun, but it's been two years yeah. really of rock focus and, mm -hmm. you know, training. And um, it, it's been great. Well, it, ta <laughs> it takes that focus, as you know. I mean, you really... And that's another interesting topic we could touch on too, if you want. But um, I certainly see that you know, we have people who come to us who want to do everything all at once. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's that, I don't know if you call it the, the Killian Journey effect or the Uli Steck effect. You know, they want to sure. be able to run a 100-miler and climb 514 and climb Everest or, you know, what, whatever. There's this huge basket of things they want to do. <laughs> which each of which would be a formidable accomplishment in your life. And yep. as you know, the training for hard rock climbing does not look at all like the training for mountaineering. <laughs> in fact, they, it they, does not. the training for mountaineering <laughs> is definitely going to hurt your training for rock climbing. Exactly. And I, I think you're right. How few people kind of recognize and honor that fact that it, except for a very few individuals, it really does take a focus on, you know, what you want to prioritize and then putting the energy into that. And, um, you know, I really see and feel that now. And um, I've been having, you know, I've, I've maintained a base and kept running and backcountry skiing, but really not as a priority. And that's allowed me to gain muscle mass in different places and become a better climber and it's been amazing but as i felt that kind of like burn growing again for going to the big mountains and doing something personally like you know i've i've i'm ready to let go of some of that rock climbing you know i'm pretty sure i can mm -hmm. remain a 512a rock climber but i'm pretty sure i can't be a 513 rock climber while putting the focus in that i want and need to yeah i think that's absolutely 
the case when you have high aspirations. I mean, it's one thing to you know want to be able to climb five seven or five eight and be a mountaineer. Sure. I mean, those are sure. that's pretty compatible. Um, but once you get up into those double digits, you know, in the five twelve yeah. and above range, it takes a really concerted effort and. But what I tend to try to convince people to do is use more of a serial approach rather than a parallel approach. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. either this year is a rock climbing focus and next year is a mountaineering focus, or even we'll, I've, I've done it with folks where we do a shorter, a block. Like, okay, this, mm-hmm. these three weeks are going to be focused on, you know, preparing you for the mountaineering expedition with you know, a little bit of maintenance work in, for, on rock climbing. And then the yep. next three weeks, we'll do a block that focuses on rock climbing and you know, with a maintenance program for the mountaineering type uh, training. And that seems to work, although you know, it's not ideal for either. But you know, I think it's one of the reasons yep. that, you know, especially, you know, especially in alpinism, where you have all these combined sets of skills where you need to be very good technically, but you also need to have this big endurance capacity. It takes years and years to yep. build that kind of capacity for that sort of work. And I think yep. that's something that isn't well either understood and maybe I'm doing a crappy job of communicating it, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on today to talk about some of this kind of stuff. So I'm glad we're on. starting to scratch the surface a little bit. By yeah. the way. Whoa, right? would you look at that? Wearing your K2 shirt. I yeah. love it. So, Is that uh, from like an original expedition? or? Yeah, yeah. That's from uh, 1995 when I was there. Love and, it. Um, <laughs> you know, the, did you, have you stayed in the K2 hotel? Or K2 motel in Stardew? Uh, no. Oh, no, okay. we stayed in some other place. No. Yeah, so uh, we stayed in the, the K2 motel, which is a strange name for it because it's not, it's not, it does not look like a Motel 6. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. But uh, we, we left all of our gear there, and you know, we came back two months later. Um, the proprietor couldn't find my duffel bag with you know, my sort of street clothes in it, and you know, I've been wearing these other clothes for, as you know, months at a oh. time, and they were, if not ready to be burned, at least needed good washing. And yeah. he was mortified. He was so embarrassed that he could not find my clothes sure. that he gave me this, you know, this uh, oh, sort of uh, awesome. <laughs> kind of a souvenir T-shirt for K2. And then that evening at dinner. And that's what you wore home? Well, no, because that evening at dinner, he, I, they somehow managed to find it, um, my bag of clothes. It wasn't like somebody would have wanted to steal, you know, a pair of blue jeans and a couple of t-shirts so so i'm not sure why it had gone missing but um yeah every now and then i break this out and i thought today all since <laughs> talking to you and the last time we worked together was to get you ready for k2 i thought absolutely oh, I wear that that t-shirt oh, that's that, great i love it the only piece one of the only pieces of clean clothing i had for today so yeah <laughs> emily and i had planned to go back to pakistan this summer that had been our intention to attempt the eternal flame on nameless tower yeah and um we had a media side to it and ultimately decided that the delta surge and the hospital availability and things like that were not a good fit and that's why we ended up in kyrgyzstan which was also incredible uh but i am very excited to get back to pakistan sometime because you know that was my one trip k2 mm-hmm. and it was such a special one so well and you know and if if i think you would agree that walking up the baltoro glacier is one of the most spectacular it's got to be one of the most spectacular places on the earth easily you know, Hands just, down. yeah i was just walking I mean, i'd seen pictures of course before i went and but i i couldn't believe how dramatic that scenery was um compared Same. to almost any other mountain scenery i've ever seen so it's you know it's not it's not very accessible but a lot of people if they want to see something just that you can't see anywhere else that's a great place to go yeah yeah, you know, ever uh, Alpenglow is starting to run treks there. You know, we don't want to guide K2 personally, but mm-hmm. the, the K2 base camp track is just an insane experience, just like you said. And so we're starting, we ha- had offered that this year and then canceled again because of fears of the situation, but hopefully next year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so you've got plans to go back to Everest, it sounds like. Say that again. You, you have plans to go back to Everest? I do, of course, as, as a mountain guide, I, you know, running Alpenglow Expeditions trip, um, it's still a goal of mine to kind of, um, you know, work myself out of a job on Mount Everest. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, my 
my team there is incredible with Monica involved, of course, and then uh, Topo uh, Esteban Mena sort of running the team now and working with the Sherpa and our Sherpa Sodar is really strong. Um, and so, you know, had we had these past two years on the mountain, I think I would have been quote unquote retired by now. But at this point, I think I have a couple more years on Everest leading the team, mm-hmm. both from a client marketing perspective, they, they want to see my name attached still. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, I'll be tight. You know, the trajectory of Alpenglow has been tough the last two years financially. So me staying involved and running the trip just changes the finances of some trips. So I am planning on being there in the spring, uh, guiding a private client and and running the trip. Um, And then I'm hoping to do a Kenshinchunga trip personally in the autumn. So that's kind of next year. And then we'll we'll see where I stand at that. Never a dull moment in the <laughs> no, and <laughs> I'm your, still. In I, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. I love Alpenglow. I still love guiding, even though I do a lot less of it now. And so, like going back to Everest in the spring doesn't feel like a chore. It feels yeah. like a, a privilege, you know. Yeah. Um, but Emily and I are getting closer to wanting to start a family and things like that. And so there, there are all those balancing things. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, life is like that, isn't it? <laughs> and, uh, Absolutely. Yeah, but, <laughs> the dance. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, let's, if you don't mind, let's kind of dive into this because I know you said you're not free for too much longer, another maybe 40 yeah. minutes or so. No, I think I'm okay until I'm um, 4.30 my time. So that's like hour and 10 minutes. I okay, don't know how great. long you like yeah, these that though, would be, but Yeah, I think we could cover <laughs> I think we could cover the stuff I wanted to talk about, but I'm certainly open to, you know, <laughs> you know anything else you want to chat about is fine too. Sure. Um, I'll try not to be too long-winded. I think I did a podcast with Alan Arnett a little while ago and ended up going, you know, three and a half hours. And I was like, no one is ever going to listen to this. <laughs> I don't know, some of those, you know, if I'm out for a long run, I enjoy those long-form podcasts. I really do. It's like the Joe Rogan style. They, yeah, they can just go on and on and on, and they, they need chapters, and you, you exactly. need to have, a, have pee breaks in the middle of them. Yeah. Really quickly before we start, mm-hmm. like, how is the podcast going? Are you having good interest? Have you gotten It, it any? has been in, uh, remarkably, uh, surprisingly, let's say, successful. Um, awesome. I mean, we're not, I don't think we're going to, uh, you know, knock Joe Rogan off of the pinnacle yet. <laughs> Give another few months, maybe. And this is the, this is actually the first podcast we've done in a few months because if one of the things we noticed was happening when we started doing the podcast is it was driving a lot more traffic to the website. And much of that traffic was requesting coaching. And we just wow. did not have the capacity for handling the- <laughs> more athletes. Wow. And so we had to, we were kind of pulled there were no more Facebook ads, no more, you know, promotion of any kind. And and then took to stop doing the podcast thinking we've got to stem this tide of demand wow. and or we're you know we were just we were kind of pulling our hair out it was really crazy i mean i love doing these they're fun you know, always fun to chat with people like yourself and listen to you know other people's ideas and so i'm eager to get back to them but i'm, I'm gonna have to see what happens when we put, throw the next this one out there and see what wow. kind of response we get what a great problem to have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it is. But it's still a problem. And and that kind of ties in again with one of you would ask about geriatrics, you know, the, the old geezers. Yeah. Um, so we, I don't know if you've listened to it, probably haven't, or you wouldn't have asked that question. But one of the last podcasts I did was in, um, I think, late May, early June with this guy named Art Muir, who we had coached, and he summited Everest this year and is the third oldest person ever to summit Everest. And um, this was his second attempt with us. And he, uh, that podcast, all of a sudden, we were getting tons and tons of requests from people who were in that same age category and you know, looking to do something like Art had done. And I can only call it the Art Muir effect now that um, we, and, and some of the folks that we're getting, which I really want to dive into with you, not some, but I would say half the people that come to us who want to climb Everest have little to no climbing experience at all. Yep. And perhaps you see the same thing in your guide service. Uh, 100%. We can, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 
And, and so what I have, what I and the other coaches who talk to these folks have tried to do is, you know, with, without wanting to, I don't want to burst anyone's bubble and having a dream and, you know, a long-term goal like that is a fantastic thing. It, um, but we also want to have people have sort of a realistic expectation of what it's going to take. And, you know, many people just have, because they've never climbed you know, any big mountains at all, they really don't know what's all involved, which is like one, the area, one of the areas I want to dive into with you today. But I thought it would be helpful to have someone of your stature in the industry, you know, so that I'm not always the one playing bad cop, you know, and telling people, sure. you know, well, instead of next spring, how about if we think of one or two springs from now, so you can have yep. this, you know, this time in between, between now and then to actually learn how to be a to learn how to climb these big mountains as well as get fit. Absolutely. Um, are we, are we on? Are we, are we, yeah, yeah, we are. We, yep. Yeah, we are. We are. Recording. Right, like, should I save everything? Or no, I? hit me with it. Hit me with um, it. Yeah. You know, uh, well, 100% I'm, I'm excited. It, it's funny. There's probably quite a few of us playing bad cop in different places, but maybe we all think we're all alone. Like a lot of times I feel like bad cop talking to people who have so much excitement. And, and I think, you know, first and foremost, like obviously as a guide service owner and a mountain guide and someone who loves Everest, I don't want to shoot down anyone's dreams, right? People's right. dreams of climbing Everest or other mountains, be it K2 or Amada Blom, we get, we get requests for these really famous mountains. And probably 50% of those requests are, like you said, people who haven't climbed before and don't necessarily know what it takes. And like, I love that. I love that we're touching people and creating this passion through our industry or whatever, our sport. Um, but the flip side of that is then trying to persuade people to what the correct approach is to have hopefully the most fun and the most success and safety for themselves and their teammates. And, you know, I do feel sometimes that not everyone in the mountain guide industry is maintaining the same standards or believes those same things. And so the challenge we sometimes have is when we try to slow people down, there is always another option with going someone else who is willing to go faster or to skip steps. And mm -hmm. I get frustrated with that. And that's when I get soapboxy and start yelling and screaming <laughs> and things like that. And Emily has to talk me down. Like, um, <laughs> so, so there is that side, but you know, what I always try to start with people is it's not, it's not specifically a number of years it takes to get to Everest. It's, it's a number of expeditions and kind of like climbing days. And I have successfully seen someone in 12 to 18 months go from zero to Everest, but it's someone without a job, usually without a family or with kids out of the house and with the financial ability to say, okay, over the next 12 to 18 months, I'm going to do six expeditions. And in between those expeditions, I'm going to fill in with basic rock climbing training in Red Rocks or in Colorado. And, you know, I already have a great base of fitness from my triathlon career or whatever it was. And, you know, these different pieces. But the, the big thing I push is like, people always talk about wanting to hack the system and go faster, but it's not really a, for me about like learning how to use your crampons or your ice axe or knots to tie. It's like having enough expeditions under your belt you failed a lot of times is what I explain to people like enough expeditions to have been out in the mountains when things go terribly wrong and unexpectedly wrong, whether it's big storms or avalanches or sick partners or the crazy stuff you never expect, like earthquakes or political upheaval. Like it just takes time out there to have those experiences. And when someone comes to me, you know, when I, they're like, I've climbed these three mountains and I've succeeded on every one. I'm like, oh, they're definitely not ready for Everest because they haven't been out there and just gotten their asses kicked yet. <laughs> and that's what we need to be ready for when we're, we're up on Everest, you know, like I think, you know, I've spent 13 seasons on Everest now and six of those seasons, my entire team has failed. And that might not be a great advertisement for my company, but I think I'm very good at my job and Alpenglow is very good at what it's done. And that's how much is out of our control. Right. And that's why we have to go in prepared and experienced and check all the boxes we can ourselves. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And you know, this fellow, Art Muir, who I mentioned that I'd, um, we coached to his uh, su successful summit this year, you know, the first time he went, I had I told him he wasn't ready, and he got his ass kicked, and in fact, probably came very actually came pretty close to dying. I mean, he uh, mm. could have easily been killed with the fall that he took um, wow. because he wasn't prepared for that kind of thing. And that, <clears throat> you know, luckily he didn't he didn't even suffer too much injury from that, but it really reframed his approach after that he came back and went oh, okay now i see what you were talking about yeah this is really dangerous and i wasn't ready um and i took a completely different approach to his training um you know, as you know we focus primarily on this the, the physical preparation getting people fit to, to do these sorts of things we we can't do what you do by taking people into the field and you know teaching them skills or being with them uh in different situations we're basically you know going to help them get fit and that's all we can do and we rely a fair bit on guide services that we work with to uh and, and I think we deal with the reputable guide services like yourself and who who will also tell a client that they're not really ready for the, the, some of these um, goals that they've, they've chosen for themselves. The trick I have, and the thing I'm, maybe this is something you feel too, is when I say that to someone, I mean, I'm, I try to couch it in terms of, you know, my experience, which is you know, pretty 50 some years of being in the mountains, um, but also, you know, trying to set up some, make this a realistically obtainable process for them so that mm -hmm. they can, go through this process knowing that it's not going to happen in six months perhaps, um, but not tr but doing it in a way that doesn't make it sound like I'm just trying to sell them coaching for a year and a half instead of six months. Or in your case, Absolutely. sell them you know, other trips. And Absolutely. It's a rather delicate <laughs> position. And I, I mean, I think that you as well as I do know, know very well that, you know, these failed attempts or even successful attempts are really needed in order for somebody to have the skill and the confidence that, that they're going to be able to deal with the even, you know, even a perfect trip, um, let alone a trip where, as you know, on these big mountains, in your case, the wheels have come off 50% of the time. And, yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I know that in my climbing career, it's my personal climbing career has been much worse batting average than that. Um, Absolutely. I, I my had a personal career as well. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> it's I, been worse than that. Long ago, my, one of my um, climbing partners, Charlie Fowler, I don't know if you remember Charlie's name very well, Absolutely. but yeah, Charlie and I were very close and climbed a lot together. And we used to do a lot of winter climbs in Rocky Mountain Park back in the you know, late, early 70s and mid-70s. And we once calculated that our success rate on those was about 10%. Um, and so I actually even wrote a little bit about this in training for the new alpinism. It was like, you know, learning how to fail gracefully and, you know, and, and not being ashamed of those failures that, you Absolutely. know, Charlie had it down to an art. Charlie would actually brag about getting his ass kicked and, and say, woof, I really wasn't ready for that. And I, you know, and, <laughs> and I think that that's a, it gave me a healthy perspective on, you know, these, these failures and this gaining experience kind of thing. Um, and so I, I've been struggling, actually, honestly, which is one of the reasons I reached out to you is to how we can convey this to our audience and hopefully, you know, some of the folks in your audience as well, that this realistically, this could be a two plus year pro process, really, for most people. And, and in fact, we can probably save the money because if they pay for an Everest trip that they're not ready for, that's going to cost a lot more than, you know, climbing on the Blom or a couple of other, you know, more kind of intermediate goals that they could have. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think the money savings is a funny thing that we talk about to our clients as well. You know, a big one is I, I think you might know that before climbing Mount Everest, we on our group trip, we require a client to have climbed another 8,000 meter peak. And for us, that's mm -hmm. usually Cho Yu, although some people go to Montesluit with another company and then come to us. 
And probably 25% of our business now is actually people who have tried Everest as their first 8,000 meter peak with someone else. Mm -hmm. And we count that towards, okay, if they've attempted an 8,000 meter peak, now they're eligible to climb with us. So it's not about going to the summit. It's about having that experience like we're talking about. But one of the reasons Alpenglow came up with that um, and again, like I'm talking a little more on the experience side than the training side, but I think they sure. both tie so intimately together, right? Like mm-hmm. what the reason so many of Alpenglow's clients work with you, uphill athlete, is because that is your expertise is training people for these big mountains. And yeah. then our expertise is getting them this technical experience and kind of life experience to be ready for Everest. But the reason we came up with that 8,000 meter peak uh, requirement is because as you know, I used to guide for Russell Bryce for years mm-hmm. for Himalayan experience, kind of the, one of the great legends who created mm-hmm. guiding in the 8,000-meter peaks in the 90s, along with Eric Simonson and, and other guides, Kari Cobbler. And I've, you know, just so much respect for Russell and what I learned through those years working with him. And he kept statistics, and he mm-hmm. had an Excel spreadsheet that showed his success ratio for clients who had climbed show you before going to Everest and his success ratio for clients who climbed Everest without going to show you first. And the difference was something like 30% in success ratios, keeping yeah. everything else the same. Mm-hmm. And it just really clicked for me that, you know, it, it's not about standing on the summit of show you, but it was about, lessening anxiety, gaining efficiency, understanding what training is necessary to be successful marathon of an 8,000 meter peak, which no level of Aconcagua or Cotopaxi or even Denali prepares you for the length of, of an 8,000 meter peak trip. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I think there's, you know, the, the kind of life lessons you're talking about, like, you know, how to dress, how to eat, how, you know, know, how long it's going to take you to put those boots on in the morning. Um, you know, how, how not to drop your, your glove or your mitten, you know, when you're going to get the drink, Uh, you know, there's just a million little details like that, that you, you're not going to learn them on the Stairmaster in your gym. Um, and you're not, you're, you may not, you probably won't even learn thing. A lot of that stuff, um, um, climbing something like Rainier. And I guess tying back around, yeah, like what we always tell people is like the $25,000 or the $30,000 that Cho you costs is a fraction of what a failed Everest you. And yeah. While you can't guarantee, you, you know, there will always be things out of your control. I think, you know, really what we're talking about is how to maximize that potential of success and that is, and safety. And that is controlling the things you can control yeah. and going in with, the experience and going in with proper amount of training is those are the things we can control. Right. And, you know, I, I think back to, you know, maybe one good example for me is thinking back my non-successful Everest 8,000 without oxygen and my successful Everest without oxygen, you Mm -hmm. know, the, the largest difference between the two, I think was training and that not only encompasses, you know, yes, I did train with uphill athlete for my second successful season. So I was cracking the whip. That. <laughs> I was cracking the whip. Yep. But it's, but it's the whip crack. It, it, it's everything about it, right? I went in in 2016 as a very fit and capable climber, but I hadn't really yet put the time into, I think, like to truly base, taking my base building to the next level. And that, takes a long time. I mean, you know, we always talk about, I think the David Gottler, you're like, he's still improving years into his building and training phases. Right. And um, I just don't think we can underestimate the time that takes. And so, you know, I think what you're doing here on this podcast and through your blog and through, I, I think through storytelling is the best way. Hopefully we can get that message out that like a 12 week series or a 16 week series just doesn't get you ready for Everest. You might be successful. And there are plenty of examples of people who have been successful, but yeah. that successful is different. I think than actually prepared. Right. And I think that, you know, the, 
it's easy to look at a sort of anomalous data like, you know, you met somebody at a cocktail party or you read a story in a magazine or on the Internet about some guy who, you know, went from you know, zero to Everest in six months and, and succeeded. But that's not the norm by, by a large margin. And I think that that gives people the sort of this uh, false uh, perception of, of what's, gonna, what's involved in, in any of these big mountains, you know, even Denali, which we – we deal a lot more with a lot more Denali athletes and clients mm. for ourselves than than we do Everest. It's just you know more sure. more reachable for most folks, but it's and it's the same you know it's same sort of thing just on a you know a slightly different scale. But I yep. I believe it's that still a massive amount of work, yeah. <laughs> a massive endurance event. It is, <laughs> and you you have to be sort of half pack animal for that exactly. thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> But when we're looking at any of these these big mountains and the the uh, the challenges that they present to us, I think it can be difficult for people that don't have that uh, climbing experience or, or just time in the mountains to you know these success and failure that goes along with it. And they're coming from a different lifestyle. They're coming from a different yes. part of life. And often these people have been very successful at other things they've chosen to do, or they wouldn't probably be able to afford to go to Everest. And so they think, okay, if I just put my mind to it, you know, I've succeeded at these other things. And if I put my mind to it, I can succeed at this. And chances are they're right. They can. I mean, we've worked with a lot of folks and gotten them to the top of, the, of many big mountains. But I think along the way, in that in that process, what usually happens in our experience when we when we can convince somebody, okay, this needs to be a multi-year uh, approach where we're going to start off with, you know, if you if you haven't ever been on a glacier glaciated mountain, you know, we should be thinking about Rainier as your first intermediate goal, yep. and then we can talk about other mountains and maybe slightly higher altitudes and perhaps Denali. Um, and it's usually during that process of, of attaining those intermediate goals that they go, oh, now I see what you're talking about. I'm not ready for this. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I didn't, they don't know what they don't know. I think, you know, it's just, if you and I were thrown into their world, we wouldn't know what we don't know either. Um, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and like we've, I, I've had this talk, I guess, most recently, a couple of years ago, with a guy who was a very successful attorney. And I, I said, you know, if I came into your office and I asked your legal opinion on something, but then told you I wasn't going to do it, you think I was an idiot, right? Yeah. And I said, okay, this is just the, the position, the roles are reversed here. You're coming into my office and you're asking my professional opinion on, you know, are your preparedness to go do an 8,000 meter peak. And you're, you're telling me, Oh, I don't need to do those things. I'm special. I can do this. And, and perhaps he could, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I'm like you, we don't know what people are capable of. We've, we've seen people who we shake our heads and think, Oh my God, how did that person do that? And so it's, it is possible. And I, like you, I don't want to, you know, tell people their dream is completely unrealistic. I just want to prepare them in a way so that, you know, they're, I think if they have that long-term time horizon and perspective and they realize they're sort of chipping away at this goal with these intermediate um, goals along the way, they can, they'll be gaining confidence, which I think is a yep. huge, as you know, huge thing. Huge. Um, and going into uh, you're going into the climb with confidence can make a really big difference. 100%. I mean, I think, I still think so much of the, I, I was going to say failure, but like many times when I see a client struggling to be successful on a bigger mountain, it's because of, I think, anxiety, which I, I think ties to that confidence issue, right? Like when, when so much is new, or when perhaps someone's not as well prepared as they could be or should be, whether that's learning their nutritional system, learning how to sleep, you know, learning all the ins and outs of a big expedition, or just they haven't prepared, you know, physically well enough, they haven't trained well enough. Well, that all then lends to this like ball of anxiety that then makes sleep harder and nutrition harder. And it just 
builds and builds and builds and it and it cracks people and I've cracked under anxiety and that you know feeling before but it's that is what I think a measured kind of slower approach can really help like what is more fun than seeing someone truly ready for the goal that they're going to achieve or attempt even if it's still audacious but that like knowledge that they're ready and the kind of ease that that can put in that they can take the ups and the downs and the sick days or the days where they feel weaker or different things around resting as well because there is that overall confidence like it's it's so much more fun as well when when someone comes into a goal like that yeah i i think it can't you can't overstate that component and as you know my uh in my not too distant past, I was coaching Olympic level cross country skiers. And one of the things that I found to be really successful for very high level athletes like them was if they could see progress in their training. So doing measured types of workouts, you know, not unlike, you know, a track athlete would do going to the track and doing 800 meter repeats, that sort of thing. If we could build a, uh, a gradual progressive program during which they saw their times dropping and they were, saw improvement and from time to time, the confidence just kept building and building and building. This is all preseason, you know, before we go into the racing season. So that then when they hit the racing season, they knew they were ready because they were, you know, they could actually we had a barometer for measuring their fitness and their, or more, maybe less, we weren't measuring so much their fitness. We were measuring their speed, but you know, that was kind of the speed as a proxy for fitness. But I really saw that across the board with these athletes that for them, when they stand on the starting line and they know, yep, I got this, you know, I can do this. I know what I'm capable of and have these realistic expectations. You know, maybe they're not going to win a gold medal perhaps, but they, although one of them did win a silver, but you know, they, they may just be able to, despite the fact that they may not be a world champion or something, they are going to be able to say, okay, I know what I'm capable of. I'm ready. I can do this. I have this confidence rather than standing on the starting line going, I don't know what is going to happen when that gun goes off. And yeah. I think the, the, the analogy to what you and I are talking about with these big mountains of, you know, just knowing what it's going to be like to sleep in a tent at, you know, six or 7,000 meters when the wind is blowing 80 miles an hour, you know, just knowing what that's going to feel like is really an important thing. Absolutely. It can be really scary, especially if yeah. you've never done it before. <laughs> but I think... I think that's an interesting point that specifically uphill athlete training and, and the programs, having these benchmarks or ways to show progression. Now, of course, going to different mountains along the way can be one way to do that, right? To have these big goals, successes, like that's a fantastic way. But I also think, I, you know, I do think this type of training can be quite solitary. Um, oh, yeah. It has been for me at times in the past. Um, and And it can be hard to notice the improvements um sometimes when you're just months into this building like you know i remember one thing that really helped me was i remember my first year working with you like you know in order to stay in my zones i suddenly found that i could no longer ski with my friend tahoe like that country right. ski because they were you know more these higher zones or black holes or you know just as i was having to do this like and i remember for for months at first, I couldn't ski with my friends anymore. And I was all alone out there doing my trainings and hoping they were doing something. But then I remember like, there was a point where, okay, I could start to ski with my friends again, as long as I wasn't breaking trail, I could maintain my zones. And all of a sudden I felt way, way better. And I was skiing in Tahoe with my fast friends, but I, you know, was there. And then finally getting to the point where it was like, oh, I can even take my turn breaking trail now and, mm-hmm. and still meet my workout, you know, uh, uh, goals like that was a way that I found I could finally I could see progression but making sure athletes have a way to see and feel that I think is really important yeah and you know one of the I think the easiest ways and we did this if you remember that there was that uh, really steep hill that you used for your muscular endurance workouts yes. part way down to Reno 
from your yeah. pla- from your place. Peavine Hill. I'll yeah. never forget. <laughs> but you know, looking you, forward another year down there. <laughs> but you, when you do that on the same piece of dirt, you know, time after time, that's when you were able to see, like, oh, well, I'm four minutes faster on this climb than I was, you know, two weeks ago. Um, yep. That's another one of those little confidence boosters that really does help you. Um, but you're right. It, this is endurance training in general is a solitary undertaking. Um, and I think it's, you know, for many people, that's, that's really challenging, if, especially if you've grown up doing like, you know, team sports and things like that. It's hard to kind of wrap your head around, you know, having to go out the door at six o'clock in the dark and go for a run. Um, but I think one of a lot of folks I have worked with have come to embrace that and say, I never, I'd read about the kind of this, you know, Zen moment that the runners would have the runners high or whatever. And, um, I even had somebody refer, this is beyond, this is before you were uh, probably even born, but there was a really famous movie in the sixties, I think called the loneliness of the long distance runner. It was a British film. And it wasn't really about running. It was about a kid trying to run away from a terrible life. But he, he used running as a way huh. to do that. Um, but I think that, you know, that, that I've always thought of that term, the loneliness of the long-distance runner. That's kind of the story of life for people who are training for these <laughs> undertakings. Is You better really enjoy your own company because you're probably going to be spending so a lot of time with yourself. <laughs> Podcasts have made it a lot easier. Right? Yes, they have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have <Yeah>. to say. <laughs> yeah. Traction is good too sometimes. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it was when I, one of the last communications you and I had was after I, I was out for a long day in the mountains and had listened to Emily's Joe Rogan podcast and yeah. you know, really enjoyed it. And I think you're right. Those t- types of things have made it much easier to go and spend hours doing this and sometimes i don't want to quite i don't want to be, get back to the car too quickly or i might not be to the end of the podcast so <laughs> do a few laps That's around a good the park, podcast do, do some laps around the parking lot before i <laughs> before i head home absolutely absolutely um, yeah well i know we're kind of coming up on your time um but uh or actually my time i'm sorry i've got another call in 10 or 12 oh, minutes but um Anything else that you think we might have skipped over or that you think needs to be you know, reemphasized? You know, I think, I, I think what you said earlier on can, can, that I kind of want to restate, which, which is the idea that we will all hear stories of people who succeed on these big mountains, maybe with a complete lack of training or a complete lack of experience or, 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 or just the six months or just the, you know, I know there are people out there who have just been to Kilimanjaro and then gone to Everest and, mm-hmm. and probably been successful at times. And like, I just think it's so important. I think about this in, in avalanche education and avalanche mitigation a lot, that, that a successful outcome doesn't mean you made the right decision. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the dangers of avalanches is so often, sure. We might be making the wrong decision in our analysis of the avalanche hazard, but we didn't get caught that day. And so it yeah. reinforces those decision patterns and until eventually some very experienced people sometimes get caught. And that's possibly yeah. one of the factors in that. Yeah. And one of the things I think about so much about these big mountains is like, you know, I tie it to no one needs a mountain guide on a good day on any of these mountains, you know, like, um, but when, when things go wrong, is, is when we need mountain guides, when hopefully you have a good infrastructure around you and a safety net and, a, and chose the right company that has the right resources for those times yeah. that thing go, things go wrong. And I think the same is 100% true about experience and training. Things will go wrong in the mountains. And the best example I have is in 2018, I think you might remember when Alpenglow had a failure of our oxygen systems. I, they're your regulators, and, yes, I remember that. So did some other companies, but we lost in the vicinity of 70% of our oxygen regulators within 45 minutes of each other, all above 28,000 feet. And all of a sudden we had non-acclimatized, essentially acclimatized to a little over 7,000 meter clients, Sherpa and guides at, you know, 8,500 meters 
with not enough oxygen regulators to go around the whole team. And we fought for our lives that day to get everyone down. And in some way, you know, luck, of course, was part of that. But I would also say skill of the guide company and the guides and the Sherpa was part of that. And I would also absolutely say that the training and experience of our clients was part of that. That in a very scary situation where everyone was being physically pushed to their limits, every single person on that team was able to play a role to help everyone get down safe. And, yeah. um, and those things will happen in the big mountains yeah. and training and preparing and building experiences is, is what will help us all to hopefully stay safe and happy up there. Yeah. I think enjoying the experience, you know, is, is really key when it, you know, because it's, it's, it's going to be hard enough and miserable enough a lot of the time that if you're, you know, if you're not really ready to accept that level of discomfort or whatever, and, and you don't enjoy that, um, then it's going to be a, a miserable trip, even if you succeed. I 100%. Think. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think that is the other cool thing. The whole process of training and experience on other mountains, like hopefully it's a incredible part of someone's life, right? Like the vast majority of people who come to me and say, I want to climb Everest. And then we say, let's start on Mount Shasta and then go to Ecuador and then go to Bolivia and then go to, just like you're saying, build experience mm -hmm. through these other mountains. Um, the vast majority will actually never get to Everest and that's mm -hmm. perfectly fine. But hope, you know, like I've watched just so many people have incredible experiences on those other mountains and, and find out if it's truly for them before spending $85,000 in two months of their life on the big one. Yeah. Yep. Well, the, the, um, one of the things you just mentioned about this graduated approach that we've been talking about here that has really resonated with me over the years is the, the that, as you pointed out, the things will go wrong. And you kind of need to be prepared for that worst situation and not just be hoping that everything's going to be okay. <laughs> because in those types of situations, when things go wrong, they can go wrong. Like you're, in your case, they can go wrong terribly fast. And what can turn out, turn from a, or can start out as a, a rather benign day. Maybe in this case, it's, you know, it's already a pretty difficult day, but it, a really pleasant benign day can certainly, certainly suddenly turn into a, a near disaster or an actual disaster. You know, um, and you, I know you saw on K2 how a terrible mountain that is in terms of rockfall, I'm sure. Um, I was with a partner who was nearly killed uh, in the Black Pyramid by a rockfall that just came from nowhere. You know, we didn't even, you couldn't, yeah. it wasn't bouncing. I mean, it was in, it was airborne and, you know, just almost took his head off. And it went from being a nice day out in the mountains to, yeah. you know, two days of getting, trying to get this guy down before he died. And luckily he, we made it, but you know, it just can happen in the blink of an eye or, you know, in your case, over the course of 45 minutes <laughs> and having that ability to, you know, shift gears from that pleasant day out in the mountains to, you know, kind of disaster mitigation um, and having a skill set that allows you to do that. Or even if you don't have the skill set, being with people that do and be understanding how to be a, an effective part of that team. And if yep. you've never been there before, exactly. you know, it's, yeah, it'd be exactly. like throwing me into a, you know, with a bunch of firemen in a house fire, you know, I, exactly. I would love to help, but I don't have any idea what I'd be doing. So, um, that's right. I, I think, yeah. And, and it's a great thing to stress, like hiring mountain guides and hiring the best guide company in the world. Like it doesn't replace personal responsibility, um, or, 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 you know, the personal need for, for strength and experience. And I think like Alpenglow is like in our mission statement, it's to develop competent team members. We're not saying every single person needs to go out and plan their own Denali expedition and go there. That's not mm -hmm. Alpenglow's goal, although we love it when someone's trying to get to that point yeah. through our programs, but to become a competent team member takes time and it takes experience and it takes effort. And it takes training and fitness. And that's our expectation and, and our goal. So let's wrap this up. Where can people get more information from you? Your website? Yeah. Or can they follow you on any social media? Yeah, thanks. So, you know, so my 
guide company is Alpenglow Expeditions. And, you know, our whole reason for being is to take people for human power climbing and skiing adventures in the mountains. And we love the big mountains. Um, so our, our website, of course, and also on Instagram, Alpenglow Expeditions. And then my personal account is Adrian Ballinger. And it's kind of a mix of my own climbing as well as being a mountain guide. So it was great. a great place to follow. Well, Adrian, this has been really helpful. You've, you've bolstered my confidence that I'm not being the complete bad cop here when I tell people these things. And, Keep um, up the good fight. <laughs> yeah, I, I really appreciate that because, like you said, you, sometimes you feel like kind of the lone ranger out here. You know, um, but I'm glad that you've had similar experiences, and I think we're – definitely on the same page with regards to this approach. And I hope that people can take, you know, take away the real message that you and I are trying to impart here is not that you shouldn't aspire or even try to climb these mountains. It's just that you need to be ready. And, you know, and we've, now we've discussed how, how that readiness can happen and there, because there is a way you know, we were all beginners at one point. Absolutely. It's, yeah. And it's, it's one of the most fun stages, I think. We were talking earlier about me flying. I mean, mm -hmm. part of me flying is being a beginner again and feeling that progress. And so, yeah. you know, I think it, it's something to embrace and to own, like, in those early phases of a mountaineering career. And um, to put the effort in, the sport will certainly give back for that. Like, we know you and I have both developed a life around the mountains. And yeah. It's worth it. Yeah, I think that, you know, that the excitement of learning, you know, learning something new, and especially learning it in a fantastic environment like the mountains offer. So, well, Absolutely. thanks again, Adrian. It's been a pleasure catching up after um, a long time of not really seeing each other. But I, I really appreciate your taking the time. Um, I will I'll let you know when we're ready to put this thing out there. So we'll that sounds great. I'll, I'll look forward to sharing it and uh and hearing it and uh really enjoyed the chat yeah and and uh hopefully look forward to working with you again that can be a separate conversation but i know how busy you all are but uh i hope we can make it work yeah i hope so too we'll definitely have that talk in the future <laughs> maybe <laughs> do a little uh persuading but um <laughs> thanks for joining us today for more information about what we do please go to our website uphillathlete.com.